Wow, Lord Johnston is talking about ski bullies on the ski slopes and being heckled <laughs> if you fall. What a hell of a way to spend the day off. This week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with the aforementioned Laura Johnston, along with Chris Vernaski and Jane Cahoon. The sun is shining and it's March, right? Everything's looking up. It was 18 <laughs> degrees this morning on my walk. 18. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let's just get to it. Did former Ohio Republican chair Jane Timpkin do a huge turnabout in what she thinks of Congressman Anthony Gonzalez after he voted to convict Trump in his impeachment? Jane Cahoon, this really was kind of staggering. A one month change that is as dramatic as can be. Take us through it. Yes. So Timken, as you probably know, has announced her bid to run for the U.S. Senate. That's why she stepped down as Ohio GOP chair. And on Monday, she said that Anthony Gonzalez should resign because of his vote to impeach Trump, that he went against the party's leader and this undermined his ability to be an effective legislator. Now, let's uh, wind back to, as you said, about a month ago, she told Andrew Tobias in an interview that, uh, you know, she didn't uh, know that she would have voted how Gonzalez did, but she said, you know, I think he's spending some time explaining to, to folks his, his vote, and I think he's got a rational reason why he voted that way, and I think he's an effective legislator, and he's a very good person. So, voila, you know, then, then she threw him under the bus on Monday. This, just as an interesting backstory, Axios had a scoop last night that said there was this meeting at Mar-a-Lago with Trump and Ronna McDaniel, the, the head of the RNC, and, in which Trump asked her about Jane Timken, you know, wondering if she was loyal enough to him and whether, you know, he should endorse her. And McDaniel spoke highly of, of Timken, but apparently at some point, some of his advisors, including his son, Donald Trump Jr., talked Trump out of making an early endorsement in this race, you know, noting that there were other multiple candidates in the race, including some pro-Trump candidates. And so the Axios story also said that Trump later talked to Timken. So I don't know what was said there. But, you know, after that, she promptly demonstrated her loyalty by, by as I said, yeah, throwing but, Gonzalez under the bus. But you're not supposed to be loyal to a person. You're supposed to be loyal to principles and party. And right, so here she right. is saying, look, he's explaining his position to his constituents, but he had reasons for doing it. He's a good legislator. He's a good person. And one month later, because the Donald says, hey, he's got to go, she calls for him to resign. I mean, I, that, that's yeah. a frightening lack of character, right? She it, was it, already getting pressure from Josh Mandel, who I know, who but, is going after Gonzalez. And but as we've said, it's like the the contest over who can be the Trumpiest. I think one could really be quite cynical about this race already, the way it's developing, as you said. It's, you it's just not a senator who stands for nothing. I mean, for her to reverse the position so quickly because the all hail, the worshipful leader said, I want him gone. What does she stand for? What will she ever stand for anything? Or is she just going to you know, give Donald Trump the salute and do whatever he says. This is frightening. This is. A yeah, it just makes you Ohio wonder. Politics. Right. As you said, the the primary now on the Republican side 
you know, it looks like it's just going to be devoid of substantive issues. All they're going to be talking about is who's who's more loyal, you know, and who's kissing Trump's ring. But what happened to serving the Constitution, serving your constituents? This democracy was never about worshiping one very dishonest man. I, I, I'm stunned. I thought Jane Timken had some character. This is revealing that she has none. I mean, you don't do this. You don't change your position because your fearless leader tells you to. Why would we even need to elect her? We can just have Donald Trump tell the Senate what to do and they'll do it. What's the point of having elected officials at all if they're not going to represent their constituents? She's so desperate that she, uh, to, to lose that she's just going to do what he says. I, I, it kind of makes you wonder if she's going to next uh, go after DeWine. She's going like to have to. Josh Mandel did. Right. She's going to have to because Donald Trump, you know, didn't see. It, it, wow. It's just. This is a, a very serious moment in Ohio politics. I hope people are paying attention to it, because if that's the future, we're just not being represented. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Starting Thursday, a whole lot of people will be eligible for the coronavirus vaccine in Ohio. Jane Cahoon, I'm not one of them, but who are they? <laughs> yeah, you're not one of the additional 900,000 people who, starting Thursday, are going to qualify for the vaccine. That's Anyone age 60 or older, you're almost there, Chris, but sorry. Um, also, people with type 1 diabetes, arteriolateral sclerosis, and recent bone marrow transplant recipients, pregnant women, law enforcement officers, corrections officers, firefighters, child care workers, and people in the funeral services. So some restrictions are going to exist among those groups, like Law enforcement and first responders, they have to be active duty people, although volunteer firefighters also will qualify. And in child care, you know, parent volunteers and board members, they, they don't qualify, but the, but the frontline people do. And, you know, the correction officers are included, but the prison inmates are not, although inmates can qualify if they're eligible, you know, under the other criteria like age or, or a medical condition. Governor DeWine says he's making this move because a new vaccine is arriving, this newly approved Johnson & Johnson vaccine, as well as increased supply of the ones we already have. And he ticked off a number of openings that he said, you know, for appointments that exist. If you live in such and such a city, there's so many appointments available. And uh, although I'm sure some people who are still frustrated with this system might dispute that, but Anyway, we're, we're getting almost half a million doses of vaccine this week, which is a record, including about 96,000 doses of the Johnson & Johnson plus the Pfizer and Moderna ones. And what DeWine said is, you know, we have to expand this group of people who are eligible to make sure that all this vaccine gets taken up after it comes into the state. We just can't waste it. We got to get it in people's arms. Yeah, but at some point, you got to think we're just going to stop the classification and say, OK, go get it. I mean, if a half million are coming in and Merck announced today that it's going to start producing the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, the, the numbers are going up at such a rapid rate that at some point, isn't it just, OK, <laughs> like the flu shot, go get it. Or, or, right. do, or do we go 60, 55, 50? 45, well, 40. I mean, you got to believe it's going to happen soon. But honestly, they've added almost a million people here. So, you know, I think maybe we have to see how you know long it takes for them to but, all but get it. But think about it. We know that about 40% of Ohioans say they won't get it. 
people under 18 or 16 can't get it. So, you know, what does that leave? About 4 million Ohioans that, that are likely to get it. So at some point, it's just, <laughs> let's go, let's get it. I mean, yeah. and, you know, I, I think it was Chris who mentioned yesterday, or I guess DeWine said yesterday that there was some place in Ohio that had like 2,000 doses or something. And they, mm-hmm. it's like, come on, man. If, it, if it's that prevalent somewhere, let's, let's just let people... Yeah, I bet people would drive down to get it if they were uh, they were eligible. You keep hearing from people that are trying to be in drugstores at the last minute when they're going to have to throw it away <laughs> just to get it. Like, right. You know, right. We, it's just become, I mean, yes, he's opened up the floodgates, but we still hear from people who are, would like to get it. Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Just about everyone has driven down Carnegie Avenue at East 55th Street in Cleveland and seen that hulking graffiti-covered eyesore that is the former Warner and Swayze factory. Is it finally going to be redeveloped, Chris Bernowski? Well, maybe. There is, uh, the Cuyahoga County is considering a $1 million loan to a developer to maybe convert the long vacant building into a housing and office complex. The $54.1 million project is being led by the Philadelphia-based Penrose developer and would mark a significant change there in the Midtown neighborhood of the the sprawling eyesore complex at, at 5701 Carnegie Avenue that is largely set vacant since the early 1990s. The city acquired it and demolished a portion of it for a vehicle maintenance garage, but the plan now is to maybe turn it into apartments and, and offices for for Midtown, which is sort of the 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 new up and coming Cleveland neighborhood. So that that might be good news for that place. I mean, it's a bombed out shell. It's you. It, yeah, it, right. Lived here for twenty five <laughs> years, and every time you drive down that road, it's just covered with graffiti, and it's and it pushes right up against the uh, the sidewalk. It, I, it it's just an odd one that it has sat there at kind of a key intersection for Cleveland all these years, just just rotting it'll be interesting to see if um if they get it turned around finally because it is a kind of a signature entryway into the city so we'll have to see it's good that the county's using its economic development fund for some economic development right it's it's worth noting that the uh, the developer is responsible for renovating the St. Luke's hospital in the Buckeye Shaker neighborhood and is involved in the redevelopment of the CMHA's uh, Cedar Estates in the central neighborhood so this isn't just a, you know, I, when you say an out of, out of town developer, people get nervous, but they're already involved in, in a handful of projects here already. You got, you just got to wonder, is that building worth saving? Is it historically significant? I mean, there's a factory, but is it, is it attractive? I mean, it's not now. But... One, you'd be amazed at what they can do. And two, it's probably more structurally sound than, than, than you think it is. I, I, my guess is that since it's been vacant for so long, if, if, any part of it had been unstructurally sound, they probably would have taken it down by now. But Yeah, good point. Mm-hmm. Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. Cuyahoga County Executive Armin Budish is losing two of his original cabinet members. Laura Johnston, who are they and where are they headed? So Economic Development Chief Ted Carter and Communications Chief Eliza Wing, they're both quitting their county positions to take jobs outside the county. Carter makes an annual salary of $214,000. He's going to serve as the city of Baltimore's deputy mayor for economic development, and he is going to leave the county starting April 1st. Wing makes $158,000 and will work as an advisor for the public relations firm in Cleveland of Dixon Eaton. 
Her last full day is March 15th, but she's offered to stay on two days a week to help with the transition. But you're right. Both have been with Budish for his, since his first term. So we're talking about six years here. And you've got to wonder if they're getting out <laughs> while they can, if they see a, a sinking ship about all this incompetence that we talk about on a regular basis on the on the podcast. Yeah, I just don't know how many. Is there anybody left from his original cabinet? We should mention that Eliza Wing once was the CEO of Cleveland.com. I've wondered how long she could stay there because she has built a whole second part of her life training people in mindfulness. She's just published her second book. And I've wondered how how the conflict between mindfulness and peace and and you know really concentrating on on your outlook matches up with working in that administration where it's constant conflict and constant mess. It just didn't seem like those two things could coexist. Yeah, it's got to be a, a stressful place to work, I would think, at this point. And turnover is not uncommon in government jobs. I mean, people come, people go. That's true. I, it's, it's part of the part of the drumbeat of government work, I guess. Okay, thank you, Chris Warnowski. You're listening <laughs> to This Week in the CLE. Ohio's unemployment office has been nothing short of a disaster since the pandemic began, and now the head of the office is leaving. Jane Cahoon, this was all portrayed yesterday as happy talk stuff, but is that really what's going on? Well, the the stated reason is that uh, Kimberly Henderson, formerly Kimberly Hall, was recently married and she plans to relocate to North Carolina with her husband. So that's, you know, we don't we don't have any intelligence about, you know, whether she got a shove. But, you know, she has been under fire as the head of this department, just plagued with with problems and including the failure to adequately serve an unprecedented number of people who were thrown out of work by the pandemic. And uh, they also have this massive problem with fraud and, you know, a phone system that people can't get through on and an antiquated computer system that's totally overwhelmed. Anyway, starting March 8th, uh, a guy named Matt Damschroeder, who's probably familiar to people on Capitol Square, he's director of the Ohio Department of Administrative Services and has been around for a while. He's going to become the interim director until a permanent replacement can be found and Henderson's going to stay on as an advisor until April 30th. But um, as I said, you know, I don't know whether Henderson was, you know, being pushed out, but, you know, even if she was, it, I think it's important to keep in mind that the, you know, the buck on this really stops with Governor Mike DeWine and Lieutenant Governor John Houston. They, they've been aware of these problems and apologizing for them for months and months and months. So I don't think we should scapegoat anyone here. And as I said, I don't know that that has anything to do with her well, departure. But And to um, DeWine's credit, he seemed to want to message exactly that because he had her on his briefing to to talk to her and she described why she was leaving. If he had nudged her out, I don't think he would have given her the friendly send off. It was almost like he was acknowledging it's not her fault. It's my fault. Mm -hmm. It's John Houston's fault. And and she's leaving on good terms and we don't wish her yeah. any well. I mean, it is a disaster. I mean, it's one of the most frustrating things Ohioans are dealing with. They're very frustrated. I mean, the people yeah. who can't get their money, they're just in in agony and it boggles the mind that they haven't been able to fix it. You start to wonder whether they're actually committed to fixing it. When a problem exists for a full year and affects this many people, maybe their stated commitment isn't really there. Yeah, and it it was only recently that DeWine brought in these experts from the private sector to try to 
troubleshoot all these problems with the call center and the fraud and everything. And we specifically asked DeWine this at his briefing on Monday, you know, what what have they done since they came in? And he he kind of waved us off and said he would be having a briefing later to explain all of what they've done so far. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like he promised a report, too. I think he said there is a report that will be coming out at some point. But he yeah. didn't give a date. I thought he said it might be Thursday. No. He said in a couple of days. So yeah. that usually means the next Meeting. The next briefing. Yeah. Okay, well, we'll have to wait and see. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why did the Oberlin Conservatory issue an apology for how it handled a Black History Month event? Chris Ranaski, the optics on this were about as bad as they can be. As bad as they could possibly be. So, yeah, and, and the Oberlin Conservatory issued an apology after it received a great deal of backlash for a flyer that was titled quote, a celebration of black artistry, a virtual performance that ended, that signified the end of Black History Month and and their Black History Month events. The problem was, is that the flyer highlighted an all white group performing at this event. So uh, the conservatory housed in Oberlin College, the private liberal arts school here or in rural Northeast Ohio, the apology they posted on Uh, Sunday evening basically says that they acknowledge that it was a mistake uh, to post the the event out of context and without pictures of the composers themselves. They they said they were sorry and they will continue to to reconsider their policies moving forward. The the flyer has since been deleted and commenters on the online apology sort of took issue with the statement that the post was out of context, instead stating that the problem is that an all-white group was performing a recognition of black composers. So not not a good look for the college, so I'm sure it will have some meetings and soul-searching to do in the coming weeks. Yeah, when you saw the ad, the, the flyer, it did kind of jump out at you like, what, what, how is that a Black History Month event? Everybody on here is white, and, you're, and the people that are saying, well, wait, your apology about we should have had pictures of black composers, where are the performers, it seems well-suited, but... You never want to have to apologize for your apology, and I think that's where this is headed, unfortunately. Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. When's the last time we were below zero in Cleveland, and how do we stand with snow so far compared to the last five years? Laura Johnston, you spent the day in the snow yesterday on your day off, and we are coming out of winter. Is How do we stand? Let's uh, Let's catch up. Well, despite the complaining that we've had to shovel a lot, we're actually pretty average. We haven't had this much snow since the winter of 2014 and 2015. So average overall over the last 70 years, uh, Rich Exner did the crunch the data and found out that we rank 34th out of those 70. And that range goes from about 22 inches in 2015, 2016 to 88.9 inches for 2002, 2003. And that is for just by the end of February. We are not out of the woods yet. March generally has snow, I guess. At some point in the last of the 69 years, there's been some kind of snow in March. My first year I moved back to Greater Cleveland in 2007, it snowed 30 inches in March. So I hope we don't get that. Yeah, so we're pretty average overall. And if you want to talk temperature, it hasn't dropped below zero at Cleveland Hopkins Airport in more than two years, since January 31st. 2019. And if you're around for a little while, you remember in like 2014, 2015, we had day after day below zero, people's pipes froze. So it hasn't been that cold in the snow. We've gotten more snow than we've gotten in the last five years. Uh, Right. And I guess that's why it seems like a lot of snow, because we just haven't seen it 
recently, but if you're going to look at the bigger picture, this is pretty normal. Well, let's break the record and have our first march in Northeast Ohio with no snow. I'm all for that. All right. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Which Northeast Ohio school districts did not make it back to the classrooms by Monday's deadline? And when will they? Jane Cahoon, Mike DeWine can claim some serious success. He used the vaccine for teachers to get kids back to the school rooms or at least give them the option to. And across the state, they mostly have. But we have some outliers here. Yeah, we got seven school districts that didn't quite make the deadline. And and five of those seven are in Northeast Ohio. But they do seem to be on track to to get back soon and to, to face kids back in. Not surprisingly, most are the larger urban districts that have more children and, and more challenges. For instance, Cleveland, they, they pushed back the beginning of a, of a three-week plan to get back into buildings uh, from March 1st back to March 8th. And the CEO, Eric Gordon, said the district just wanted to make sure families had time to learn about the plan and to opt out if they wanted to, and just to, in general, give them more, more time to prepare. And then we've got uh, Akron, Columbus, Cincinnati, Youngstown, Richmond Heights, and Garfield Heights. Most of those are are coming back like next week or the week after, you know, phasing kids in. Usually the kids uh, coming back first that have the most needs. As you said, March, March 1st was this deadline that DeWine said in exchange for the state providing these vaccinations, not only to teachers, but to school staff and um there weren't any consequences per se for not returning, but DeWine made it clear what, what his expectations were that at least, you know, every kid would have at least an option to go at least in a hybrid format. They estimate that about 200,000 vaccines were given out in the K-12 program, although those aren't final numbers. The first round of doses is almost complete and with one school finishing up vaccinations this week. So, and some personnel have already received their second shot. So we have more than 300,000 school staff in Ohio, but um, we we don't yet have a confirmed like percentage of staff who are vaccinated or who agreed to take the vaccination. We've given DeWine a lot of criticism that other people have uh, about how he distributed the vaccine and made it very hard for people. But you do have to tip your hat to his strategy. He had a limited amount of vaccine to use. And so he very strategically put it with old people because they were the ones dying. And because he knew the damage children were suffering by not being in the classroom, he dedicated part of it to the teachers so that they wouldn't feel afraid to go back. And it worked. They're all back. I mean, they they all spent a year away, as Laura Johnston well knows. uh, And the damage from that year is yet to be measured. But at least DeWine's strategy did bring them back and you got to salute them for having an idea that worked and, and making it happen. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Who's in charge of the big investigation of statehouse corruption and House Bill 6 now that Dave DeVillers has left his post as U.S. attorney for the Southern District of Ohio? Chris Renaski, I was sad to see him go because I, I thought he led a very good investigation But as you've said in a previous conversation, these offices are loaded with good investigators and good prosecutors. So generally, the investigations can continue. Who's in charge of it now? I don't remember saying that. You did? (laughs) did? Okay, good. Thank you for refreshing my memory. But a longtime prosecutor from the office, Vipal Patel, will be taking over 
the as lead investigator in the largest bribery investigation in Ohio history. Patel became the acting U.S. attorney for the Southern District, Ohio, on Monday, replacing his former boss, DeVillers, whose last day was Friday. Former President Donald Trump appointed DeVillers, and Joe Biden will get to name a permanent successor for that office in the coming months, based on a recommendation from Ohio Democratic Senator Sherrod Brown. So Patel acknowledged that he is filling some some very big shoes and and noted that he is he will continue investigating the the first energy scandal to the greatest degree possible and you know he does take over at kind of a a moment where we haven't had a lot of of new news come out of it in in relation to people being charged we're so we're there's still a, a lot i believe that has yet to happen in this investigation and and at least on the public side of things so so it'll be it'll be interesting to see where this heads so i know that Biden asked for the resignations of all the U.S. attorneys appointed by Trump. But in past years, they've been allowed to stay until their permanent replacements are chosen. Is that just something that wasn't in the cards this time? They wanted them gone and they wanted somebody else in the spot? I guess. I mean, you know, that that old saying, they serve at the will of the president. So, you know, the the president's will in this case is is that he wants somebody else to head that office. So. I don't know that there's really much that can be done about it <laughs> once that decision is made. Well, DeVillers did a good thing, and uh, I hope he, he leaves feeling some satisfaction that he caught some major scoundrels and is bringing some sanity back to the state house. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What are the Cleveland Clinic and Metro Health trying to do with clinics for long-haul sufferers from the coronavirus? Lord Johnson, it's become more and more apparent that some people suffer for many, many, many months once they get the coronavirus and researchers are trying to figure out why that is. What are the clinic and Metro Health trying to do? Yeah, this is really great. They're creating clinics for long haulers. And these are the patients who continue to suffer those symptoms for well after, you know, those two weeks that a lot of people get. And we've written about this issue for a while now. I think it cropped up in the summer. And the thing is, these people weren't even being reflected in the really serious cases of hospitalizations or ventilators, and they weren't being counted any differently, but they just it just kept hanging on. They were exhausted. They're not getting better. So these clinics are going to connect the patients with symptoms to a bunch of medical experts, and it's going to span the gamut so they get a lot of different help. Then they're going to try and figure out how to help them. They're going to look at their fatigue, shortness of breath, cough, neurological symptoms like brain fog depression, insomnia. And first, it's going to start with like recommendations from doctors they've already been seeing. But then soon, hopefully anybody will be able to go and think, look, it's just not getting better. Yeah, it's it's nice that in the center of medical, the medical industry, that we have a couple of our hospitals really trying to help people who are dealing with this. And you've heard from people that have talked about the fatigue and you know, the brain symptoms and things, and to have people focus on that um, will be helpful uh, in the long run. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. A lot of little news stories today, other than the Timken one, which is gigantic because it's frightening for the future. Uh, I, you know, it's nice to have a slow-paced news day once in a while. We haven't had a lot of them. Uh, we'll have to see how it goes today. Thanks, Laura. You, Thanks, Chris. You jinxed us. Yeah. It's a Tuesday without a DeWine briefing. So. We have one of those last week. It didn't seem to slow the news. Thanks to everybody who listens to This Week in the CLE.